Flamethrowers, Lindsay here. I am so, so excited to be joined for our interview this week by Howard Megdal, the founder of The Nine and The Next. The Nine is a newsletter that each day of the week you get a full digest of a different women's sport. And The Next is a 24-7 basketball newsroom. Howard, hi. Hi, Lindsay Gibbs. It's so good to see you always. It is so good to have you with us. So Howard is here this week. We're going to do, we're going to talk all things women's basketball. And by all things, I mean like 30 minutes worth of women's basketball. <laughs> That's short 30, for us. 30, 40 minutes. It's very ambitiously short. We have a heart out here. But um, we're going to start off by talking about Howard's explosive report that published last week on Sports Illustrated about the state of ownership in the WNBA among other things. I think that's kind of the PG version of the way to put it. And then I got some questions. You know, it's March. Most of the conference tournaments were last weekend. This Sunday, I believe, is Selection Sunday, or Mm -hmm. which I think the women are a part of now. But we just want to talk through a few March storylines. Get everybody pumped for the madness because it's already started. Howard, let's just get right into it. So this piece for Sports Illustrated, the big top line takeaway that most people had was about this fight over charter flights with the league fining Joseph and Clara Sai of the owners of the New York Liberty for chartering a plane for half a year for their team. Um, They got about a $500,000 fine. Uh, But there's a lot more to the story than that. How did this story come to you? And uh, yeah, let's start there. Well, in, in terms of how the story came, it was just, you know, it was flagged and, and immediately, you know, there was this clearly broader set of issues that, you know, it illuminated. You know, there's the fact of the fine itself. There's the fact that, you know, depending on how you define it, you could call this like the largest scandal in WNBA history. But of course, that's such a weird way of thinking about it because, the scandal was a team trying to do right by its players. And, you know, we'll get into the details, obviously, of like why it was problematic that the Liberty did this unilaterally. And there were owners who support charter flights who did not support that for obvious reasons. You know, uh, the fact that it was done, you know, not publicly, Uh, you know, all of those things played a part in it, but it's, part of a larger issue, which is to say that there are a number of different layers of WNBA ownership who want the lead to grow at different rates. And so it's a very difficult challenge for Kathy Engelbert to navigate. Yeah. So Kathy Engelbert's the commissioner, of course, she's been around, I think, since 2019 now, um, a few years. It still feels like she's brand new sometimes, but that's just because all the last few years blur together uh, in one big blob of time. In a lot of ways, she's not really had a chance to make her own stamp on the growth of the lead in that sense. You know, the capital raise and the WNBA raised $75 million, uh, as was announced a few weeks ago, uh, was something that for the better part of two years was something she was trying to do. But you take over in July 2019, you have a CBA you got to put together first. That gets signed in January of 2020. Now you're ready to move forward with whatever the next steps are. And less than two months later, you know, the world stops. So 
she's new and she's also been through more than, you know, I, I would argue any other leader of the WNBA prior to now at the same time. I certainly don't envy her being at the helm these years in particular, because as we've seen with a lot of sports leagues, and as I'm sure we've all seen in our lives, right? Like the priorities that, that seemed like to be like what we would have guessed our main priorities were for 2020, like changed pretty quickly. Right? That they did. Some of those main priorities are 2020, haven't even made it back on my list, you know, since then. And I'm sure it's the same um, for these sports leagues, but let's get into this. So why, why, why in the world was it problematic? Oh, that's a great question. That there was they chartered a jet because without any context, that sounds bananas. <laughs> yes, without any context, it does. So, but the context is this, right? And, and this is true of women's leagues and men's leagues. There are, and mercifully, about to be an NWSL as well, CBAs when the players collectively bargain collective bargaining agreements. And in order to have those CBAs have an equal playing field for the different teams within a league, there need to be aspects of it that all the teams need to follow. Um, and in this case, for the duration of the WNBA, the issue is as simple as, well, the charter flights would be so prohibitively expensive for some WNBA owners that the league didn't allow it for anybody. And that would be considered a massive competitive advantage. Now, whether it is, whether it ought to be moving forward is a whole other question. Uh, you know, there, there is a pathway where the lead were to lift that from the CBA and some teams that wanted to do it would be able to do it. And some teams who couldn't afford it couldn't or, or wouldn't do it. Uh, in the same way that there are some teams that are building sparkling new practice facilities at great expense. There's nothing in the CBA preventing that from happening. There's nothing in the CBA from paying Becky Hammond a million dollars a year, the way the aces are. By the way, there's nothing in the CBA from paying Becky Hammond $10 million a year if they wanted to. And so the question of whether charter flights relative to the other economics of the WNBA are going to be something that is a fight the league is it, that it behooves the league to continue to do is an open question in my mind. And there are ways short of changing that in the CBA. And by the way, just changing it on the ownership side, because it's not, yes, you'd have to get the players to agree, but that that's, that's a phone call, yeah. right? That's, <laughs> you reach out to Terry Jackson and you say, Terry, we'd like all, all of your players to be on charter flights from now on, like it's not going to be like a heavy lift on the PA side. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think obviously there's so many ways we can go there. I want to say honed in on the travel thing because there were a couple of things that kind of have come up this off season. Um, the first is in that CBA, there was language saying um, the players would always get or they would always try to get uh, maybe business or economy plus in the commercial travel. Mm -hmm. um, and I know there's rumblings from some players and I think the players association had a tweet that like they didn't feel like th this was happening in good faith. Also at times coaches being uh, in first class, just, you know, problems with the setup of commercial travel that kind of goes beyond um, your typical uh, commercial flight schedule. Do you know if this, if the, if the gripes about 
that part of it came up at, at all during these negotiations or during this discussion? Easiest way to put it, and, and I think everyone will understand sort of where this comes from, is that you can have a CBA all you like. The implementation of that CBA is done by 12 teams and competence may vary. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a very, very fair way to put it. Another really explosive part of your story that got a lot of attention was this uh, part about in a meeting on, I believe, September 13th, I believe it was a WNBA Board of Governors phone call. Zoom. Zoom. Mm -hmm. Zoom, of course. Um, Tell me what happened during that phone call (laughs) and what you think the significance of that is. The New York Liberty came to that meeting in the midst of um, a lot of anger over their charter flights and in the midst of the league figuring out what they were going to do about it uh, to say, you know, listen, we could get it fully paid for for the entire league for three years and essentially got shouted down by other owners who said uh, this was um, something, well, the players might get used to it and then there's no going back from it and wouldn't they just prefer Um, a pay hike instead. And so it wasn't uh, something that the Liberty uh, ever formally presented um, because essentially they were uh, shouted down by voice before they had the opportunity to do it. Um, Now the league has gone to great pains uh, despite the fact that, you know, at no point have I reported that there was an official proposal presented uh, and, and explained what happened in the story to say, you know, well, there was no official proposal at any point from the Liberty, which is true. It's just not something that anyone has said at any point. Right. It's not something anyone said. We all know there's a difference between floating things and not feeling that there's excitement or energy to solve the problem. I have to say that's the part that frustrated me the most, um, thinking about that. What if they get used to it? mindset. To me, that's fear of not growing. Where do you think that stems from among some factions of WNBA ownership? There's two parts to that. And I don't think that's an irrational actor. No. By the way, either. Right. In other words, there are WNBA ownership groups that if for the next 10 years, the investment was over the long term and you didn't see profit returns, could handle that and weather it easily. And there are WNBA ownership groups that wouldn't want to. And there are WNBA ownership groups that can't. And those are very distinct things. And again, it goes back to, and it's purely hypothetical, Mm -hmm. right? But if you've got six ownership groups who are able to handle whatever accelerating takes place, are you as a league prepared to lose six ownership groups? And do you have six other billionaires ready to step in? You know, these are the types of questions that need to be asked that are fundamental to how quickly or how slowly Kathy Engelbert elects to take the league uh, in a direction of growth. So those, those are significant. But then the other part, and, and there are folks I've talked to in the league who even absolutely support a move from dollar in, dollar out to investment for the long range in the same way we see every day in men's sports, right? Who still have that fear. There are teams that just disappeared in this league. There are teams that just moved overnight because owners decided they were done. By the way, 
the New York Liberty are one of those teams. Jim Dolan decided one day out of the blue, hey, I'm sick of losing money. We could talk about why and how that happened in New York and what was, <laughs> you know, input led to outcome, but that's a whole other thing. Whatever it is, Jim Dolan decided to do that. And the league had to spend the better part of two years trying to find the right owner. If it hadn't been Joe Sy and Clara Wu Sy, I don't know who it would have been. Because, you know, you just as simple as like, where's New York going to play? Like if it hadn't been Barclays, it wasn't going to be MSG because of Dolan leaving them by the side of the road. What are you going to play in St. John's? You know, are you going to try Newark again, which would have been okay by me. And I think you, I think it would have been interesting uh, to see, but it, it didn't go well when they were, when the Liberty were there temporarily during MSG renovations uh, some years back. It, it, it was a really difficult thing to the point that you had like Adam Silver and Lisa Borders coming to Westchester uh, County Center, uh, which was not a professional <laughs> facility. It was not a collegiate facility. It was a facility that high school teams were um, concerned about and in fact pushed back on some high school championships taking place in Westchester County Center. I have a lot of affection for Westchester County Center. It's where my wife and my parents got vaccinated, but it was not a professional <laughs> arena. And you had Adam Silver and Lisa Borders coming in. So, oh, this is just like Cameron Indoor. Leave aside that it was like a quarter of the capacity of Cameron Indoor. Leave aside that the New York Liberty weren't even at that point bothering to try and sell tickets to New York Liberty. I, I mean, I literally at one point just called to try and get tickets and I had somebody try and upsell me, upsell me Westchester Knicks instead, the G league team. They were, they had entirely checked out. Wow. That franchise had been left on the side of the road. And so for people in the WNBA to be worried that going too fast could lead to something like that doesn't feel irrational to me at all. Well, and if you, I mean, I've been working, as you know, on this Houston Comets podcast. So diving into a lot of WNBA yes. history from 97, 96, 97 through 2008. And I mean, <laughs> there were some errors made. The league went from eight teams in 97 to 16 teams by the 2000 season, <laughs> like doubling in three years. But by the way, the attendance was great. You can understand why they did what they did. There were forces that came along that that's look, I, I'm a big believer in where this is going. Yeah, because then after that, right, which there were some indicators that those were the good moves, right? After that, from 2000 to 2009, you had 10 franchises fold completely and three move. Um, and that doesn't even count. Mm how in the middle of CBA negotiations, both in 2014, when the Sparks uh, were randomly put up for sale and they had to try and negotiate a new CBA without any ownership from the Sparks. And then, of course, with Dolan with the Liberty. So, uh, and that all happened in the 2020 negotiations. So there's been some trauma in this league. Uh, a lot of that trauma has come from billionaire owners or very, very rich people deciding they no longer give a shit about women's sports after a few years. Correct. So you're right. The apprehension is justified. And I do want to point that out, right? Like, you know, to have worry that unless, you know, geez, these teams will all go bankrupt and have worry more of, you know, will 
billionaire X decide, hey, I'm tired of this out of nowhere and leave you with a lead that struggles dollar in, dollar out, and suddenly the definition reverts, um, you know, you can understand why that happens. Now, that said, I think there are some critically important financial parameters that are set to change. Um, the fact that um, within a couple of years, the absurdly low ESPN uh, rights deal with the WNBA is going to come up for a renewal. And even if the low end of what the WNBA has reason to expect it to be comes to pass, no team's going to have to worry about the financials of charter flights after that. It's very, uh, very exciting to hear. What is that deal right now? Can you, do you have those details in front of you? $25 million a year and it runs through 2024. Well, I mean, if ESPN's only airing uh, 25 games per season, <laughs> a million per game, you know? I, I don't even know how to respond to that without an obscenity. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the WNBA schedule just came out and ESPN, uh, I got lots of press releases from people at ESPN and ABC about how they are airing 25 WNBA games this season. And I, uh, it's better than it was right there. You know, there's always this stuff, right. Of, and, and we, we experience this every day, every day in the women's sports world of like, do we celebrate the win, even though it's belated and it's limited and it seems begrudging, or do we talk about how much more there is to go? And this is always the balance to strike. And the answer is yes. The answer is always we do both. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's, yeah. But if you if you ever want to make somebody in WNBA circles curse, what you can do is say something along the lines of um, the line that ESPN has put out there for the last few years, which is every single. NBA Summer League game is going to be televised on the ESPN family of networks. Every single NBA Summer League game. Summer League. What was that thing you were saying about obscenities, Howard? Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's insulting. I, listen, I am, I am a passionate lover of the game of basketball. I have no objection to every single NBA Summer League game being televised on the ESPN family of networks. That that is happening for primarily players who are not going to play even in the NBA at any point before that is true of every single WNBA game boggles the mind. It's pretty infuriating. All right, before we move on, there's one other piece. Uh, well, there are a lot of other pieces to your story we could get into, but um, I want to talk about this capital raise um, and the fractures that came around there. So first step, let's review for people. One of the reasons why tensions are so heightened right now is because of the four owners who've kind of come, who are newish to the league, uh, all since 2019, three since the CBA was come in in 2020. And I believe these owners have deeper pockets than some other WNBA owners and are just kind of fresh eyes. I think this, what the, what was the quote in your story that they were shocked at how little they were allowed to invest in the league? Yes, although it's more complicated than that, too. There are owners who have come around who have been in the league for longer, who are ready to invest more. In fact, in many cases, are investing more. And so it, it's not just their factions. There are factions within factions. There are different owners who have different 
support for different initiatives. It, it is complicated, but yes, there are some newer owners who definitely are looking uh, to make things go a little faster. And, you, you know, Mark Davis has been very public about this with the Las Vegas Aces. Yeah. Mark Davis with the Aces, Joseph Sy, as we mentioned, with the Liberty, the Atlanta Dream owner, I know was another one. And then, of course, in Minnesota, you've got a confusing mm-hmm. situation where I think Glenn Taylor is still technically the majority owner for now. But Mark Laurie is very committed yeah. and, and is... Is clearly a part of that. And could be the majority owner as soon as next year uh, himself. The expectation is that that is a succession well underway. Um, All of this is happening as is capital raise. So can you explain to people how the WNBA ownership model is structured and what this capital raise did to that? So it's really interesting. For the first 25 years of the league, the league was 50% owned by a collection of the 12 WNBA teams. So each team with an equal share of that 50%. So it was a 4.18 or whatever, you know, whatever 50 divided by 12 is. And then the other 50% is owned by the NBA. And so as such, every ownership agreement, uh, every ownership uh, decision essentially has to be approved by not just the WNBA board of governors, but also by the NBA board of governors. And, you know, there's certain, there are obviously huge advantages to that. That means the NBA has invested a ton of money through the years in the WNBA. There's also the disadvantage that, especially NBA owners who don't have also a WNBA team, there's limited appetite for doing much of anything because they're not going to necessarily gain or lose very much uh, by any sort of change. And so that really slow walked a whole lot of things that perhaps the WNBA would have liked to do or certainly should have done along the way. Now you add in the fact that over the last couple of years, operating income was down in the same way it was down in other leagues as well. And what was already a desire to have a capital raise in order to invest in a lot of necessary infrastructure changes from you know the league's digital properties, uh, things like lead past, uh, to merchandise, which of course you know could be its own show. Us talking about that um, also becomes making sure that there's um, a financial floor for some WNBA owners who were hit particularly hard by the lack of uh, in-seat arena revenue over the last year and a half. Yeah, a lot of going on, but now things are even. I think if women's sports grow as much as we think they can grow. And honestly, we know they can grow if maybe pandemics would stay away a little bit, you know, <laughs> like, you know, the world doesn't end. Oh, listen, I, I mean, as the great Ari Chambers would put it, it's about invest in women, not bet on women. If it, if you invest, it's a sure thing. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And I think it was interesting to read your article uh, in your article about how some owners were happy about this. Some owners thought it wasn't enough. And some owners thought that, uh, their share was being diluted way too much and that this wasn't good. But forgive me because because that was. And so let's just let's just lay that out. They raised $75 yep. million. Some were already WNBA owners. A lot of people were not. And the new ownership stake, you know, the 75 million uh, was distributed to the WNBA over time. Uh, will be distributed over time, but the new ownership states are about 16% of the ownership of the league. So WNBA owners, that that 
that ownership stake that was 50% is now 42. And the, the NBA ownership stake was also diluted to 42%. So you have three essentially blocks of ownership stakes in the WNBA now, rather than the two that we've had for 25 years. It's just, it just seems like a little bit of a mess to me. Uh, I'm going to keep going because one other piece, <laughs> I just, I I feel like that just following up on that could be another uh, full interview yeah. and me banging my head against the wall saying why, why, why. But uh, the last piece, and you and I both agree, this hasn't necessarily gotten enough attention. What did you find out about the valuation of the league during your reporting for this piece? The valuation of the league was for most of the conversation, most of the effort to raise capital, $200 million. Which just sounds staggering low. That sounds so low. To staggering low. A, pre, a pre-investment valuation of 200. The league was looking at a $50 million raise. So it would have been a post-raise of 250. Uh, and the new block of ownership would have been about 20%, you know, 50 divided, you know, 50 into 250. Ultimately, um, the valuation when it was finally voted on by the WNBA Board of Governors uh, was 400 pre-raise, 75 million coming in. So a post-raise of 475. There have been comments from Kathy Andelberg that the league's valuation is $1 billion. Um, that was uh, stated to me prior to publication. Um, I asked for any indication of in what way that could be possible and why and how uh, a league is somehow getting 60% of its, or depending on, it wasn't stated, is that 1 billion before or after the race? There was no elaboration, but it was just remarkably unclear. Let's even just say it's after that it's 475. The league and teams together are a billion. You're trying to make the argument that more than half of a league's value is somehow independent of the sum total of the value of all of its teams. Forget that no other league in human history has valued itself that way. It doesn't even make any sense. You, you know, you say, well, what league assets are there? The TV deal gets paid out to all the teams. So that's why the teams are inherently valuable. You know, the, the, the revenue that comes in, none of it is just like cream off the top that goes to the league before you turn around and are giving it to the teams. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. The only way, you know, and I've talked to a lot of people since then, I'm really trying to understand it. Um, and, and reiterate to the league, you know, let me know, you know, we'll update, um, is if there are 35 Van Goghs in Kathy's office, because at that point, you know, those, that's very valuable artwork. Presumably that belongs to the WNBA. And therefore the $1 billion valuation is something I can get my mind around. But that's, that's the closest I've come to being able to figure out where that number comes from. And so then, of course, the other question is why? And I don't really have a good answer for you. Presumably, you would want the valuation to be as high as possible so that when expansion teams buy in, they're buying at a higher rate. But one would assume that an expansion team isn't going to take it on faith, is going to need to know what, in fact, the valuation was at the time of investment. Yeah, I think all that sounds about right. And um, 
it, it's hard to really grasp where that difference is and why it can't be explained clearly because the number one billion was very clearly being floated by important people, whether on the record or off. Like all of a sudden, every journalist on my timeline had somehow had a source tell them one the valuation of one billion right after that capital raise. And whenever that happens, you know someone um, is speaking to people off the record. And um, I wasn't one of them, which is why I feel comfortable saying this. Like. <laughs> It's just we know as reporters, whatever, you know, five reporters all of a sudden get info, you know, you know, someone's whispering around because they want that one billion dollar valuation number out there. Yeah. (laughs) Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's go to college. Howard, uh, March did not take long to get madnessed. Now that we can officially use that for the ladies, you know. We would have gotten fined if we tried to do that last year. So that's a a big, big step for us. Big step. Uh, I wasn't struck by lightning. So good. You know, um, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm still standing pretty. So (laughs) what let's I just want to go over there. Obviously, there are a lot more conference tournaments than just the most prominent ones. But that's what we're going to focus for right now. Uh, South Carolina has been the top team all year long. Lose in the championship game to Kentucky. Howard, if anyone missed it, how did this go down? And were you sitting during the last like five minutes of the game at any point? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I kept sitting down and jumping up again, you know, but, um, (laughs) you know, Edwards coming down and hitting that three was a very big deal and it kind of capped it. But Kentucky played remarkably connected defense that helped them get back in this game. They were down by 15 points, I believe midway through the third quarter. And, you know, there was a play prior to that in the final two minutes, uh, a a, a drive to the basket um, right around Aaliyah Boston. There may not be a more difficult thing to do in women's college basketball today than get around Aaliyah Boston and get to the basket. She's the best defensive player in the country. And they just, we just saw Kentucky make play after play after play. And it has been a real up and down year for Kentucky. This is a super talented Kentucky team, a team I thought had a real chance to host. They're not going to host even after winning the SEC. They're going to 
be somewhere in the neighborhood of a seven, eight seed would be my guess. And they're just coming together at the right time around Ryan Howard, who has a chance to go number one, will certainly be a lottery pick, and rightly so, one of the best players in the country. Uh, but to do that against South Carolina, who I saw a couple of spots where they dropped to third after the loss. They're still the best team in the country. Like I, I, you know, that shot doesn't go down. And then South Carolina wins the SEC tournament. We're not even having this conversation. So like one basket drops them from one to three when, you know, I think that was behind like NC State and Stanford and South Carolina beat them both. So I'm not buying that. Um, South Carolina is still the best team in the country. I still think if you were to say, you know, pick a team that you think is likeliest to win the national title, I think it's pretty clearly South Carolina. But that just reiterates how amazing it was that Kentucky came through with that win. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, it was, I mean, it was a goosebumps moment. It was one of those goosebumps March absolutely moments was. for sure. And I missed it, but that's okay. Sometimes oh, no. I was driving, I was driving back from uh, Maryland and uh, I was going to put it, pull over and see if I should watch it. But South Carolina was up by double digits. So I was like, oh, I'm good. <laughs> I, I, tend, I watch ESPN, but I tell myself I will not look. So I treat it as effectively a radio. That, that's my pro tip for, for all my fellow Burn It All Down listeners. I love it. Um, I want to talk a little about, about the ACC as well over here. I'm in Greensboro. I was at a couple of days of the ACC tournament. NC State wins it all over the very surprise finalist of Miami. <laughs> Just nobody saw that coming. I'm sorry. I love I love Miami, but I did not see that right. coming. Um, one question. What happened to Louisville? I, I don't know. I, that was shocking to me. Louisville is a team that has absolutely got Final Four potential, national championship potential. They're super smart. They're extremely well coached. I guess any team can have a bad few minutes. And remember, they were up 59-44 on Miami. And then the Hurricanes come through and score the last 17 to win that game. Uh, but I, am I eager to see how Louisville responds in the first two rounds of the tournament? Uh, very much so. Um, but that was a bigger shocker to me even than Kentucky winning, was seeing Louisville fall to Miami and the way they fell to Miami. No, I agree. But I just, you know, Louisville, it seemed like they were really in the mix for the number one seed, possible to get two ACC teams in the number one seed. And then, you know, they've now lost. Well, I guess, I mean, they lost to UNC a couple weeks ago in a very, another very dramatic last second game. So you think, well, maybe getting a close one under their belt was good, but it didn't seem like you know, they had just had that loss. Well, I mean, I, I know you have a like a strong anti-UNC <laughs> bias, but that was not a bad loss no. to my mind. You know, UNC is, I want to say, the third in the country in defensive efficiency. Like, Courtney Banghart has built a really good program. I, I would not be surprised if we saw UNC in the second weekend. Well, I certainly hope so. You know that. But um, State, what do you think, what should people know about NC State? Because I feel like they do not get a lot of national attention and probably because they haven't had their huge, huge, huge breakthrough in the March Madness tournament. They need to make it to the Final Four for people to understand just how great Wes Moore is. Um, you know, my favorite player to watch on that team, even though Alyssa Tunane is going to be the one people talk about in terms of the first round of the WNBA draft, but Diamond Johnson is just 
spectacular fun. And she was at Rutgers and she is at NC State and she is the edge factor for them as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but they're, they're a very good team. They're, they're a Westmore team uh, at the high end of what a Westmore team can be. And what that means is they're a team that we stand a real good chance of seeing in Minneapolis as well. This is a year though, that there are more teams where I'm looking and I'm just like, yeah, I could see them in the final four than I ever remember. Yeah. There are that many teams I think capable of winning four games, which is extraordinarily hard. It's, it's fun though, isn't it? <laughs> it's so fun. Oh, that's my favorite thing. But my brackets look awful. Oh yeah. Um, well, what about what's happening in the big 10? We're pretty used to Maryland winning the big 10 fairly easily. Mm. Um, uh, they, had a shot, but, uh, you know, I mean, it didn't seem unfeasible for them to win it going in, although they weren't the favorites by any chance, oh, I agree. but they lose their first game, uh, to Indiana. And then we get Iowa, Indiana in the final and Iowa takes it all the big story, Caitlin Clark. But is there anything else about this Iowa team beyond Caitlin Clark that people should know? There is, I so I had the privilege of seeing them live a couple of weeks ago when they came to Jersey and they played against Rutgers. You know, there's a few things I want to highlight with Iowa. And I'm so glad you raised them. Right. One of them is, you know, Monica Zanano, who scored 73 points, I believe, over the three games uh, in the Big Ten tournament is just as efficient as they come at the offensive end. They have three players north of 39 percent uh, three point shooting. And, you know, even even their backups are able of are capable of coming in and performing at an elevated level. Uh, they just they're as efficient offensively as anybody in the country. I want to say they're second to BYU in offensive points per possession, uh, first among you know the Power Five conferences, and that was true last year too. And so I had this conversation with Lisa Bluter, where I said, you know, given how good your offense is, how good does your defense have to be? And she basically said, well, we were an A on offense and an F on defense last year. All we need to do is get to a C plus on defense, and we're going to be in position to be really dangerous. And that's effectively what they've done. They went from 338 out of 349 uh, Division I teams in offensive or defensive efficiency last year, if memory serves, to somewhere in the neighborhood of 200. Uh, I'll bet that's even a little better after that performance against Indiana, which was their best defensive uh, effort of the season against an Indiana team that is chock full of offensive talent, including Grace Berger, who is absolutely one of my favorite players to watch in this entire country. Uh, it is absolutely an Iowa team that we could see in Minneapolis. But the Big Ten is so good. The Big Ten is so good. Ohio State is fantastic. Maryland is really yeah. terrific this year. Uh, even though they lost and Indiana. And I said this, there's a tweet you can find old Tate's exposed where I said, I don't think there are four teams better in the country than Indiana. And I, I continue to feel that way that if Indiana gets the right draw, Indiana's coming to Minneapolis. Woo, all right. I tell everyone Howard was not looking at his notes. He just knows all of those stats by heart, which is why we heart him because what? <laughs> What? I do know he was just writing about something about Iowa. So I do think I was writing something just now about Iowa. But um we okay, quickly, uh Big 12 hasn't happened yet, but um 
you know, I know you love the job, as do I, that Nikki Collins done at Baylor this year, keeping Baylor uh, right there in the mix. I'm not going to let you talk on this one because we just have to go on to the next one. The Big 12 tournament hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Wait, you want to say something? Say something. <laughs> How is Nikki Collins not on shortlist for coach of the year? How is Nikki Collins? Who, I have she, no idea. She, took, she took a team that was playing a Kim Multi style, which is totally different. She recreated her style on the fly in real time with players who had been doing it the Kim Mulkey way. And she's turned them into the class of the big 12. I, I, I just, that is such a great coaching job. That blows my mind. And you do not see the pro to college or the, co- the pro to college transition go that well, always like that does not, uh, that is, that is not a given know. transition. <laughs> like- and, and you're in the midst of like, this is a very specific Kim Mulkey culture. Like there, this was a big, big change that she had to uh, operate within. I, I am, she, she would be my vote for coach of the year. It's really cool. All right. Want to go to the West coast though. Cause I never get to the West coast. Uh, Stanford wins the pac 12. They're the defending champions. Do they have a shot to repeat? What, what, what do you like about Stanford? I like everything about Stanford. They've got this young up and coming coach in Tara Van. <laughs> headed for big huh. Yeah, like I mean, what's not to like? Haley Jones does everything. They're tremendously talented on the defensive end. Cameron Brink is all she needs to do is slightly reduce how much she's fouling. And Cameron Brink is the impact player on a level that the likes of which we have not seen from a big in recent years. Uh, in the Pac-12, which has had no shortage of elite bigs who have gone on to the WNBA. Stanford, if Stanford wins at all, who would be surprised by that? Not me, Nobody. not even a little. And Utah is really good too. Let's not let's not miss Lynn Roberts's Utah team. That is a really good offensive team in particular. I, I, I think very highly of Utah. I love that. And uh, I agree. I mean, it's Stanford won it all. And then I mean, they lost, um, you know, one player, but they, they most of their team, most of their team won the national championship last year. <laughs> In the same way that South Carolina brought everyone back and added a couple of recruits uh, this year as well. You know, there was a lot of continuity. Right. And Indiana, you know, Allie Patbird, I looked this up. You want to talk about stats. Allie Patbird has been at Indiana for 31 years. She's been their point guard since the 1991 season. How crazy is That's that? That's amazing. <laughs> It's only seven years, but still, it's a lot. Like, that's amazing. So many years. Uh, All right. There's one team that we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, Of course, they're not in one of the big conferences, but UConn. Oh, they're in in a very big conference. The Big East? How dare you, Lindsay? The Big East is a very important conference. It didn't say unimportant. Literally, the big is in the name. You know what? I cannot, literally cannot argue with that. No. Uh, UConn is, it's been a rough season by UConn standards. Um, <laughs> by what UConn. happened by UConn standards? We have to put everything in context. What happened kind of mid season and how, but how do they look now? Cause it looks to me like they're peaking at the right time. <laughs> yeah. People are going to be pretty upset about the fact that if they've led you left UConn for dead, that it turns out that that was pretty silly. But again, like, I wouldn't pay. So fine, let me give you the the bigger picture, right? They had Paige Beckers, who's National Freshman of the Year last year, one of the best players in the country. You know, she went down with an injury a couple of months ago. They've had to play without, you know, their best player, one of the best players 
in the country and their point guard. And that's asking a lot. And they had several other vital players get hurt. They were playing with five or six people at one point. But when you looked at the following, right, these were all injuries that looked likely to heal. And they all have, except for Aubrey Griffin, which is a big loss. But, you know, Paige Beckers is back now. Um, AZ Fudd, you know, another consensus number one overall uh, player when she came in. Uh, Kristen Williams was a consensus number one. You know, there's a lot of talent there. And so all, all these people were saying, geez, how will UConn figure it out? Well, you know, they have this also this young up and coming coach like Tara in uh, in Gino Ariema. I don't know if people have heard of him. Ariema? Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'll look it yeah, up. He, I'll look it up. You know. He's won a game or two, you know, or 11 national championships. And Chris Daly, um, one of the great basketball minds of this or any era, uh, as his as his top assistant. And so just the idea of like, geez, they're going to get Paige back. They're going to get all these players back. And you got these brilliant basketball minds. I wonder if UConn is going to be able to figure it out. Like, of course, they're going to be able to figure it out. And that's what they've done. And now a whole bunch of players have gotten exponentially better because they've been asked to do more. Now Paige is working her way back into the mix. UConn, for all that, you'd say, oh, my God, you know, uh, they're, they're struggling. Or they didn't make the tournament. They were 24 and five. They were 24 and five this year. The last time UConn was not in the final four was 2007. 2007. OK, when UConn is not in the final four, that's when I'll believe UConn's not in the final four and not a moment before that. You just said final four so many times that I got to got to admit I lost track of that sentence. But uh, we're going to keep going. <laughs> you, you just don't bet against greatness. You just don't. It doesn't doesn't make sense. It, uh, I mean, you know, is there a pathway to them not making it? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's been a pathway to them not making it. A lot of different years. I was up in Albany a few years ago, and they were the two seed, and Louisville was the one seed, and Asia Durr, absolutely dominant college player, uh, you know, had the opportunity to lead Louisville. Katie Lou Samuelson had a terrible back issue. Katie Lou Samuelson managed to score 31. They figured out a way. They got back to the Final Four. This is what they do. All right. Is there a bubble team you're rooting for to get in? Ah, well... I saw last week a bracketology that had Villanova on the bubble and DePaul on the bubble. And, you know, as somebody who failed to take the big and big East seriously the way you just did yeah. a couple of minutes ago. Well, I'm looking at Charlie Cream's latest bracketology and Villanova's first four out and DePaul's next four out. I, I don't have words. I don't have words. Maddie Seedrist is, if you made a list of the top 10 players of the year, She's comfortably on that list. And Isamaro, not only is freshman of the year and should be by acclamation, but absolutely should be in the discussion for player of the year uh, with DePaul. Um, I hope DePaul makes it very much. It's always a better tournament when Doug Bruno's in it. But, oh, my God, what does Villanova beat UConn? Villanova's been fantastic down the stretch. Villanova has a fantastic resume. They're about to play in the Big East Championship game. If Villanova is not worthy of the yeah. NCAA tournament, I, I, it boggles my mind. It boggles my mind. I have a lot of respect for Charlie, but maybe Charlie's wrong on this. Maybe the NCAA already has him in. But Denise Dillon has done such an exceptional job there. Oh, my God. If Villanova's not in there, you'll be able to hear me screaming from New Jersey. And I'm not a <laughs> Villanova fan. It's, I'm not sitting here like, you know, oh, this is my college team. I just... 
as a as a as a journalist, as a fair-minded human, Villanova needs to be in the tournament. Well, you know, villain, like you said, villain. We're recording this on Monday. Villanova and UConn play in the Big East championship tonight. Uh, Villanova could make this all a true. good point Very <laughs> by getting the upset, uh, both by getting the automatic bid, and I think even that win, if it did not get an automatic bid, would move you off of. You think so? But they already beat so. UConn. I know they did it. You know, while UConn was going through stuff, but come on, Villanova's a tournament team. All right. So, uh, if you guys did not know that Howard grew up in the Northeast, um, Howard grew up in the Northeast and lives in the Northeast Jersey, now. for the win. <laughs> Might have a little affinity for the Big East. That was my that was my eighth grade research project. You could do any topic. It's subtle, but uh... I'm quite clear about it. <laughs> Howard, how can people follow you and support you? Go to at the next hoops. It's we've had 39 reported stories at the next, and that was as of the morning of March 7th in March. That's what we do. That's what we do year round, 24 seven round the clock. I work with the most incredible group of people there at the next hoops at the nine newsletter, T-H-E-I-X newsletter. I work with an amazing group of people, uh, people like Anne Tukarski, Annie Peterson, Addie Parker, uh, Joey Dillon, um, Jessica Taylor Price on gymnastics. Every single day, I learn a ton about a different women's sport and I'm the one editing, you know, I mean, I'm telling you, it's just, you get everything there and you're able to follow and it eliminates the silos between women's sports. You elevate the platform of every link around the country because people who are doing this important work aren't just at the nine, they're doing it at newspapers and magazines all over, but you don't necessarily know how to find it. And I have a lynch section for the different sports every day to make sure that the women's sports audience is there giving these stories numbers so that writers can make that argument to their editors to go do it again and again. There's nobody in this industry more responsible for growing the pipeline than Howard uh, Megdal. And that is the last, I, I won't say anything else nice about him because honestly, I've been really nice to him lately and it makes me so uncomfortable. <laughs> Man, Lindsay, if you are you getting that mad? I'm gonna say nice things about you if you if you let me. You won't let me. But, but no, 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 no. We're gonna cut this off now. But throw some money uh, his way. Support this work, and it's gonna be a really fun march. Uh, and Howard, we'll we'll talk soon. My whole heart, Lindsay Gibbs.